I'm Pastor Robert. Welcome to Riverside Friends Church. Today we're going to continue our look at the book of Jeremiah. So we started Jeremiah months ago talking about how stories shape who we become in narratives. And there's a lot of research into how narratives shape us. As a pastor, like I try to communicate to all of you the grand story that we live in that we call the gospel. And we can allow the story of the gospel to shape us, right? The world was created for good. It was broken by sin. God promised to restore it, and that was started with Jesus Christ. And we live now in the continual restoration of the brokenness around us until Christ returns with finality and restores all things. So we could even break this down into like five C's, right? We could say it's creation, corruption, covenant, Christ, and consummation. Um, and so ideally, we see ourselves as agents inside of God's story to bring about this redemptive purpose. And the stories that we see ourselves living in, they shape us. And all these stories, they shape our visions and our views of ourselves. I met with somebody this week, and they are struggling with self-image stuff. The stories that they tell about themselves, their internal monologues, their internal narrative, is based around, if only I hadn't. If only I hadn't done this. And so the person is really living in two narratives. They live in the now, in the real world, with a narrative about like their life that tells them it would be better if they had lived this way. And then they live in this separate narrative that tells them this other life, this ideal life, could have been theirs if they weren't such a failure. So then this person, they really see themselves as a failure and they live in that narrative. And there's this way that we can live in a narrative that is simply untrue. And this is not true only for us as individuals. This is true for us as a community. We can see this across things like political parties or communities, our families, or even our church can tell stories that are not true. And the people at Jeremiah's time, they've lived in a narrative that is really flatly untrue. They've believed a lie that they will not perish, but they will be protected as God's chosen people. Now, they are God's chosen people, but that doesn't mean that God is going to protect them from all harm. And so Jeremiah, he needed to live as a truth teller in a time that rejected the truth. When he told the people that Jerusalem would fall, they said in Jeremiah 38.4, then the officials said to the king, this man ought to be put to death because he is discouraging the soldiers who are left in the city and all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. So we're in chapter 39 now, and we're going to jump ahead to verses 15 to 18. It's paid, um, yeah, if you want to flip over there, chapter 39, verses 15 to 18. Here's kind of a summary of what, we, what we've skipped in chapter 39. In the year 588 BC, Babylon comes and lays siege to Jerusalem. They breach the walls, and King Zedekiah flees the city but he's quickly captured and he's taken into Babylon and he has his eyes plucked out and the Babylonians, they burn the palace and they carry off the inhabitants of the city, but they leave behind the poor people and they give them control of the vineyards and the fields. Now Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon says to leave Jeremiah behind in the city and to allow him freedom. And here's where we pick up. This is Jeremiah 13 or Jeremiah 39 verse 15 to 18. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he was confined in the court of the guard. 
Go and say to Ebed-Melech the Cushite, or that's Ethiopian, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I am going to fulfill my words against the city for evil and not for good, and they shall be accomplished in your presence on that day. But I will save you on that day, says the Lord, and you shall not be handed over to those whom you dread. For surely I will save you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war, because you have trusted in me, says the Lord. So in June of last year, I gave a sermon here on telling the truth as part of our a series on a church called Tove. I really enjoyed that. And so I'm going to borrow parts of that sermon today because that was also on telling the truth. And here we got to talk about Jeremiah telling the truth again. So the first point that we got to talk about is knowing the truth. If we want to be people who tell the truth like Jeremiah, we must first know the truth. That begs the question, like we're finite human beings with like limited understanding and a small perspective. And God is not speaking to any of us like he spoke to Jeremiah, laying out what exactly is coming in vivid detail. So how then can we know the truth? The truth is is not an idea or a statement about our reality or even a reflection, an accurate reflection of our reality. Pilate, in the Gospel of John, he asked Jesus, what is truth in chapter 19? But he didn't know that Jesus had already answered the same question a few chapters earlier. And when he said... Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Pilate in the Gospel of John, he asked asked Jesus what is truth. But truth is a person. It's not an idea or a concept. Truth is Jesus Christ. A book that we preach through, we preach through a church called Tove. And here's what they say in that book. They say, Jesus, that truth is how Jesus lives. What he teaches and what he does are the only true measures for truth. Yeah, how Jesus lives, what he teaches, and what he does are the only true measures for truth. And we should ask ourselves, does my life reflect Jesus' teaching, his actions, and his life? And we all have to come to the hard place of saying, no, no, they don't. And if you don't believe that your life like fails to reflect Jesus, if you believe that you are good, and you are perfect, say the only recourse for you is to get married. See, there's a tragedy about our world. Men and women suffer more than their sins seem to merit. That's not related to marriage. This is just another statement, right? That's the tragedy about our world. Men and women suffer more than their sins seem to merit. Let's consider the guy I talked with this week who keeps living in two narratives. There's a narrative where he never made the mistakes that he has that brought him to where he is today. And there's the other that is what is happening today, where he must grieve the fact that his life is not as it should be. And he seems to suffer more than more for his sins than really seems fair. And only one of these narratives is like Jesus. And Jesus came into the world because it was not like him. Say that to cover up that our lives do not reflect Jesus denies him the opportunity to act redemptively in our lives. So what happens when what happens when we live like the people of Jeremiah's time as though all is well in opposition to Jesus? Way that we're not really we're not really living in that way. What happens is they cover up the truth. The people of Jeremiah's time they cover up the truth. And when we suppress the truth, we deny Jesus the opportunity to work redemptively. 
This is the issue with an internal monologue that creates lies about who we are. Those are false narratives. They hide, they cover up our souls from encountering Jesus and seeing how we fail to measure up to the truth. When we create a false sense of our own self and, and how good we are, what happens is we stop Jesus from being able to really reach the internal parts of ourselves. Jesus wants to work in your lives and make you reflect him. But what do we do? How, do, how though do we drop our lies so that our souls are laid bare to Christ? John tells us in John chapter 16, verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Catch that. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So God's spirit guides us into Jesus Christ, the truth. So knowing the truth, knowing Jesus, being measured up against him is the word, uh, is the world of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Our next point is doing the truth. We've gone from knowing the truth to doing the truth. See, the people at Jeremiah's time, they resisted the truth. They failed to measure themselves against God's standard. What does it mean to do the truth if we see Jesus as the truth? Well, then doing the truth then means to embrace our failures to measure up to his goodness. Doing the truth means to grieve. That's what happens when you don't measure up. When things are not as they should be, we enter into grief. The call of God to the people of Jeremiah was to grieve that they had failed to live up to their calling. Now, I've shared this before. I'll, I'll share it again. Catholics, they believe in the transubstantiation, where the bread and the juice in communion actually physically becomes the flesh and blood of Christ when it's consumed. And Luther, he put forward a view of consubstantiation as compared to transubstantiation. In consubstantiation, Christ's presence is around, under, and in the bread and the juice. And we call this the doctrine of the real presence. That's the theological term for Christ's presence in the, in the communion. It's the doctrine of the real presence. And perhaps what we need is not a doctrine of the real presence. Perhaps we need a doctrine of the real absence. Because absence is the silence of God when we cry our loudest. It's a door left open to God who seems not to enter. It's a chamber of the heart ready and waiting for an answer, any answer. And we cry for any answer, a, a truth that is an idea, a concept, something that might ease my soul. But the truth is not an idea. Truth is not a band-aid that can be applied to the wounds of our soul. Truth is a man. God is not an answer that man can give because God himself does not give answers to the real absence. He gives himself. And into the midst of the whirlwind of his absence, he gives himself. See, Jesus himself comes in our seasons of grief. He embraces us as we embrace our grief, as we live out of a world that doesn't make sense, as we live out of a narrative that doesn't always make sense to us, as we live out of a world that seems to punish people beyond what their sins deserve, Jesus, the truth, comes and lives with us. Our Lord taught us in Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who grieve, for they will be comforted. See, to do the truth 
is to live out the sadness of our time. We grieve because the world is not as it should be. And we live out the narrative that our God has embraced this world as it is. And somehow by walking in this truth, by embracing the sadness and the absence of God, we walk from darkness into light. That's 1 John 1.6. And when we walk in the truth, we surrender to it. This is my third point. Consider this passage of scripture in light of truth being a person. It's John 8.32. And you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. We think about truth being a person. What does it mean that when we say, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free? Truth is a person who speaks to us and his spoken word heals us. And we could say this verse means you will know Jesus and Jesus will make you free. But to continue on in our, our false narratives, to continue to believe the lies that you've told yourself, the lies that you that hold you back from encountering the truth, Jesus Christ. And God wants us to be people who embrace and surrender to truth, to Jesus Christ. See, we give Jesus all the lies that we have told and believed about ourselves. We take on his view. When we give, lie, when we give Jesus all these lies that we've told about ourselves, we take on his view of us. We begin to see ourselves as he sees us. When we give Jesus all of our what-ifs that we tell ourselves, like, if only I had done this, things would be better. When we give those to Jesus, we begin to see ourselves as Jesus sees us. Let's look at James 3.14. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be arrogant and lie about the truth. And the word for bitter envy or jealousy here it comes from the Greek word zealos. It has a... Uh, it has a, a, a sense of, the, of overpowering others. It sort of means like this idea of using your bitter envy, your selfish ambition to like overpower the, the, where the strong take over the weak. So what happens when strong leaders use their power to deny the truth? What happens? They create situations where false narratives, where narratives are forced to conformity and grief is allowed in only special occasions. They hold us back from really encountering the truth from Jesus. These are situations of, are not situations of people walking in the light, but walking in darkness and holding people away from the truth, of holding people away from Jesus. And so the people of Jeremiah's time, they really failed to embrace this, their situation. They failed to live out that they need to grieve. They failed to acknowledge the reality of their suffering. And now here in chapter 39, the end has come. Jerusalem, the final capital of God's chosen land, is conquered and destroyed. That which was thought to be impossible has happened. Their leaders failed to acknowledge the reality of their sin. And the king had his eyes plucked out when he fled to save himself and left his people behind. The people lived. The king was forcefully blinded. So let me borrow from my friend Frederick Buechner. He says the gospel, if all of that sounded like bad news about this end coming and about the king having his eyes plucked out and being carried off into a foreign country, let me borrow from my friend Frederick, Frederick Buechner. He says, the gospel is bad news before it is good news. On Good Friday, Jesus died a painful, agonizing, brutal death on the cross. 
on that Friday, it was not good. It was bad. It was the worst Friday that had ever happened. On that Friday, truth was killed. Yet, through the lens of Easter Sunday and the resurrection, that Friday was good. The goodness of Friday only makes sense in light of the overwhelming goodness of Sunday morning. There is no good Friday without a bad Friday and a better Easter. The crucifixion was bad news before it was the good news of the resurrection. See, so to deny Jesus the bad news in our lives denies him the ability to act redemptively in our lives. He wants, you, he wants to take your bad Friday and turn it into Easter Sunday. Jesus wants you to know the truth, to know him, to do the truth, to embrace the fact that you don't measure up and to surrender to the truth, to give your life over to him. And today, what are the lies that you have believed about yourself that need to be laid down? What wound in your soul have you hidden from everyone that needs a bit of light shine down in it? Today, are you willing to embrace the truth about your lies, that they have harmed you, that they've held you back, and that they keep you from Jesus? Because the Holy Spirit wants to break through and meet you now and lead you into Jesus. And I pray, and that'll be my prayer for you, and that's my prayer for you this week. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you just continue to break through to teach us how to walk in the truth, to do the truth, to know the truth, to surrender to the truth, knowing that ultimately the truth is you. So would you just continue to help us by pouring out your love on us and leading us closer and closer day by day to your truth. We just ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.